THC's at Work podcast, session three. Hey everyone, Michelle Erickson here, founder of PhDs at Work, and today we are talking with Adam Capitano. Adam is editorial associate at Berghahn Books, that's academic publishing, and Today we dig in a little more to what's going on with scholarly publishing, and in particular we focus on the debates around open access. Now, in his One Year Later post, which recently uh, aired, Adam wrote a little bit about how he helped to draft the open access policy at Berghahn. And so today we're going to dig in and learn a little more about what that means for academic publishing specifically and what uh, internet disruption and technological disruption has done in his field. And then we also touch on a little bit about... um, well, the power of networking and the benefits that come with networking with fellow PhDs working in industry specifically. All right, let's get started. Okay, so Adam, I was giving it some thought. I was, I, I'm really curious to know more about uh, one of the things you wrote about in your one year later piece was that you helped to define uh, your company's position regarding open access yes and what does that mean in what does that mean in academic publishing um so okay so essentially what you have in publishing in general um in both academic and trade publishing is um you know the the published book is uh is a copyrighted piece of work so um meaning of course that you know you can't be you know, distributing it freely over the internet, um, or, uh, making it freely available to people like, you know, photocopying the entire book or something like that. Um, right. Um, the, this notion that, um, academic publishers are, um, uh, basically profiting off the, uh, work that, um, scholars are producing, uh, the written work that they're producing, um, in the course of their research, um, and it's often work that you know the scholars themselves don't really get paid for. I mean, you know, there's always um, sort of uh, royalties on books and stuff like that, but um, you know, in academic publishing, royalties are not very large because the sales are not very large, um, and so. Uh, and it was particularly, actually, particularly cute in the journals world where royalties are non-existent, um, and you have some very large, uh, particularly scientific publishers um, who make quite a bit of money off selling uh, their journals to libraries and stuff like that. So, basically, what open access is is it's this idea that. Um, uh, scholars and academics and university researchers uh, should be able to make their work, their work that they've done, uh, freely available. In other words, y- you know, um, have it uh, open to the public, essentially. Um, I mean, there's a question, of course, of how much of the public would actually be able to understand um, what's being written and done in the work, but that's another question. Um but anyway, the idea that yeah, that, that the work should be um, freely available because uh, the it's not essential. It's essentially not compensated labor, um, and uh, the only way that scholars are compensated for it is through um, 
in the case of the sciences, any grants that they might get or royalties, things like that. So anyway, um, so a lot of academic publishers uh, in response to this have essentially had to create policies um, dictating uh, the terms under which certain materials that they are publishing can be made open access. And it's sort of a fine line to walk because, um, uh, you know, the, the academic publishers, in particular academic publishers like the one I work for, um, have to turn a profit. I mean, the company I work for is an independently owned, you know, it's not associated with the university, so there's no uh, subsidy from the university itself to keep the public to keep the press functioning. Right. Um, Actually, is this problem more acute for independent academic publishers because a university press is affiliated with the university as mm-hmm. subsidized? So this issue around compensation for labor in the normal course of work slash research going through a university press that seems less problematic, but perhaps that it becomes more problematic with a non-university-affiliated independent press? Or is that really not the case and it's really just a much, it's the broader issue around open access that's in question? Um, I think it is a broader issue, but I do think that there is uh, more pushback against um, particularly some of the large um, independent, some of the large commercial publishers, um, especially scientific ones like Elsevier, for example, um, and uh, push back against sort of like uh, aggregators of content like JSTOR. Um, I think the biggest pushback tends to be against um, those kinds of organizations. Um, but, uh, but it's become an issue for every uh, publisher, I think, any publisher who does, um, who publishes academic work. Uh, and, and I mean, even university presses, uh, you know, from what I understand are expected to turn some sort of profit or at least to kind of like balance their books at the end of the year. Um, you know, I don't think the university likes to make up a budget shortfall, uh, for the press, uh, very much. I don't think they appreciate it. Um, so, um, so there's a balancing act to be kind of struck between turning the profit or, you know, being able to make money and of course, uh, respecting the wishes of the, um, the authors that your press is publishing, of course, the people whose work, um, makes it possible to have the press in the first place. So if I understand correctly, then the root of the issues around open access is mm-hmm. about, monetary compensation to the authors? Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the root of it. I mean, I think it's become an issue because I think mainly the root of it is, um, I think partly became um, this idea of uh, the internet sort of, I mean, open access as an issue didn't exist before the internet, of course. Um, And so I think, Part of it became that with the rise of the internet and electronic publishing, um, uh, academics who, um, particularly academics at public institutions whose work um, is essentially being uh, uh, funded by the public in part anyway, um, although increasingly less so the case, um, I think the idea was that you know that their work should be made available to the public at large, and that there's there was this 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 kind of pushback against um, 
the idea of being having to pay for um, scholarly contributions. Um, I mean, I guess money in some respects does fuel the entire debate, but um, I think there was this pushback of the idea that you know people should have to pay for uh, scholarly contributions when. Um, those contributions presumably could be affecting things like the course of uh, public policy or um, scientific research, um, things like that uh, in areas outside the academy. So in other words, I think part of the pushback, the initial pushback anyway, was the idea that the public should be able to read this material, this research that's being done, without having to go through the paywalls um, that are put in place by um, – universities and uh, colleges, library systems, um, of, of course, at the insistence of um, publishers and content aggregators. So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I was about to say, because if I'm, if, you know, sitting from where I sit and really not knowing a great deal about this specific debate, although it, it sounds like there are a lot of similarities with the debates going on with self-publishing and Amazon.com's mm-hmm. platform, but that that debate is squarely around authors being compensated for their work. Right. And it sounds like what's happening here, if I was to guess, it's really maybe libraries mm-hmm. balking at the cost of these subscriptions, arguing that it is their faculty that are producing the intellectual work that is being sold and perhaps they shouldn't have to pay quite as much. Is that yeah. an overestimation? Because the whole argument about the public should have access, while it's a nice argument, I have trouble imagining the quote-unquote public clamoring for access uh, to this kind of scholarly work. Am I no. being overly pessimistic here? No, no, no. I think that um, I think the libraries uh, are drivers of it because exactly for the argument that you sort of um, uh, just made, you know, this idea that the libraries turn to the publishers and stuff like that or the people like JSTOR and say, you know, it's our faculty who are helping to produce this work, so why do we have to pay out the nose for these journal subscriptions every year? Um, and I think the the other argument about, you know, the free access to the public and stuff like that, that's an argument that gets made, um, uh, you know, by academics, I think, who, you know... Um, who are making a similar point to the libraries and like you said, maybe they have a, a, maybe they overestimate how interested the public would actually be in the work that they're producing. But, um, but yeah, I think that's an argument that a lot of individual academics make. They, they sort of say, you know, I produce this work. Um, my library has to pay a ton of money for it and nobody who is outside the university can access it at all because of the, uh, the, the sort of paywalls and things like that that are put into place by the libraries once they buy the, buy the you know, journal subscriptions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, yeah, so I mean it's a debate that kind of sets um, authors and libraries uh, against publishers in some respects, I guess. Is... Do would you say that it's essentially a must-have that all scholarly publishers have to have a published statement on open access? Is it uh, not? I don't circulate in this academic world anymore. So is this mm-hmm. is this 
you know, de rigueur in this sector now? Um, I think it is, especially with um, the uh, independent publishers, publishers that are n- not associated necessarily with uh, university. So, I mean, for example, Berghahn um, definitely has one because I helped draft it. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the other, um, so like, uh, I'm pretty positive that Paul Grove has one. Uh, I know for a fact that Routledge has one. Um, so it seems to be very much the case with, uh, like these, you know, independent publishers. Um, I've, I've haven't encountered it to the same degree with university presses, although it would surprise me if, um, sorry, you might've lost the audio for a second there. I nudged something. Um, it would surprise me very much if, um, uh, the university presses were, I, I would think that I would imagine that a lot of university presses at least have something, some sort of policy in place about it at this point as well. So what is, what, what was that policy that you drafted at Berkman? Can you walk us through it at a high level? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's, it's a pretty standard policy, I think. Um, you know, part of the way that we determined what the policy would be is we looked at what some of um, the you know our competitors were doing what their sort of policies were and you know to get a gauge on um, what the uh, I guess the the standard would be or what you know to see what other people were doing to um, you know determine uh, when we came up with our policy where we would kind of fit into what um, the industry was doing as a whole. So part of it was we, um, you know, we looked at, uh, what these other companies were doing. Part of it was, you know, we had to determine for ourselves, you know, okay, what can we do to, you know, help protect the, um, you know, the, the, the profit off the value added that the publisher gives to, you know, the publications, uh, while at the same time, um, you know, respecting the wishes of some, uh, authors to have their work made available openly. Um, so basically what we did is we determined, I mean, there's essentially two levels of open access. Um, uh, and this is sort of sort of, sort of standard across the industry. There's two levels of open access. Um, the first level is um, being able to make your work freely available uh, over the internet um, uh, with some delay after it's been initially published. So that gives the publisher some time to recoup the cost of um, you know publishing your the journal article or, you know, monograph or whatever it might be. And then there's another sort of, uh, open access model, which makes something available right away, like almost as soon as it's published. And, uh, this model usually, um, this model usually costs money because that's the only way though. That's really the it's not the only way, but it's one of the major ways that publishers have figured out that they can recoup the cost of, um, you know, the investment cost that goes into publishing um, a book or an article in a journal. So the cost of, you know, 
the labor costs behind you know marketing the book or uh, copy editing and typesetting um, or you know just just kind of this sort of work I do you know submitting things to peer review and um, you know taking the time to work with the author on their revisions I mean that's you know that's that's those are labor costs that need to be recouped so um, it, it yeah. sounds a lot like the this whole uh, the first the first uh, what, what did you say the first level that mm-hmm. you described it sounds an awful lot like the movie systems and, and their windowed release where I think there's a requirement uh, a theater a, a movie that's being shown in a movie theater cannot mm-hmm. be streamed online for three months. Yes. And that's the same. This, it's the same argument, right? We have, we have costs to recoup, and the majority of our costs are recouped in the movie theater concession line, <laughs> right. not, not in ticket sales. And so that's the concept behind that. Is that, is that pretty much the same concept here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the the first kind, which is the more common kind? Um, exactly. Is that the sort of there's a set of costs that need to be recouped by the publisher, and so, you know, um, you can't make your work freely available until enough time has passed that the publisher can, you know, feasibly recoup most of those costs. Essentially, yeah. It sounds like your your uh, work sector is ripe for disruption. I mean, this is Netflix. Is Netflix totally? Um, Turned the movie and television business up on it, you know, uh, yes. turned it upside down, and they're actually in the process at this point of circumventing the movie theaters as a distribution outlet to go to immediate streaming. It's a mm-hmm. big deal. They're going past the windowing process. Sounds like someone who's looking to make a mark with a little bit of tech savvy could really do some interesting things in academic publishing. Although. Given that you work for an independent publisher, you're probably not interested in supporting that idea. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there is. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that there's, there's probably. You're absolutely right. There is probably a way for somebody to um, really challenge the model. Um, I think. I mean, I think kind of the the impulse towards open access was or is very much it's it's in part that impulse right it's that impulse of saying okay you know we have these sort of different technology that's available to us now so we can upend the existing model that's existed for so many years um and uh you know hopefully improve on it um and i think actually that that part of the reason that academic publishers um, have been so uh, open to embracing the open access model. Many of them have been open to embracing it. Um, maybe embrace is a strong word, but basically have been open open to, to um, kind of, I don't know exactly what the term that I want to use is, but um, have been conciliatory towards it, I guess maybe we could say, um, is because... For one thing, I mean, publishing, as you know, is already an industry that's um, that's uh, been kind of in decline or undergoing a sort of severe set of uh, of uh, uh, a kind of upending, I guess. You know, um, it's going through a transformation. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good way. To put it, yeah. that's a 
very good way of putting it. So publishing is already going undergoing a transformation in general, and I think that um, a lot of uh, these publishers now um, with the open access challenge have been looking at um, uh, you know things like what happened with, for example, the music industry and the film industry um, and uh, what happened, you know, in the last decade with the rise of Amazon to publishing, to traditional publishing in general, and have said, you know, uh, particularly academic publishing, which has a pretty niche market, um, and has said, okay, we do not want that to happen to us. So we need to be able to make peace with um, some of the kind of disruptive trends that are going on in the industry. You know, we need to figure out a way that we can. Uh, uh, embrace those trends or, 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 you know, um, reconcile with those trends. Otherwise, because if we don't, you know, that's, that's going to be the end of us essentially. So are academic publishers doing electronic publishing at this point? Or are they still relying heavily on the bread and butter, hard copy, you know, limited release guaranteed sales to libraries? Um, I can't speak to every other publisher, but, um, Berghahn publishes everything electronically now. Really? Yes, every single title. How does the distribution work? Is it is it similar to if you were to purchase an ebook on Amazon? Can you download and essentially check out an electronic version of one of Berghahn's books from your university library in the same way you could from your local library? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's both methods. Actually, I think I think you can get. Um, you know, you can go on Amazon and purchase one of the books um, uh, like you normally would. Um, and you can also, if you know, if your library has bought the e-copy, then yeah, you can check it out um, on your e-reader for whatever amount of time the library allows, uh, just like you would any other um, book published by, you know, Random House or Penguin, or I guess Penguin House, now um, that they are. Um so yeah, I mean, it works essentially the same exact way. I mean, the only difference, though, is that um, if you're going to go buy the book on Amazon, um, <clears throat> there is still the reliance on uh, the library pricing model, um, uh, you know, similar to a number of other publishers like Routledge and stuff like that, where, you know, you have the the library pricing model in place, um, so the ebooks. If you bought it from Amazon, you know, the day it was published, it would still be pretty expensive. What is the cost of an academic book purchased on Amazon these days? Um, on well, I'm sure, I'm sure there's an academic dis- – I'm sure there's the big discount that Amazon uh, – mm. uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. But, I mean, I know that our books uh, are published for the library market more primarily at um, like the hardcover when they first come out. They usually float around a hundred dollars, so you know whatever Amazon's discount on top of that. So um, less than a hundred dollars, but still a fair amount of money—more money than most individuals would probably want to spend, I imagine. Even for an ebook. Yes. Even oh, for- how interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's no discount given the reduced cost of the distribution model. Um, no, um, in part because. Um, I mean, these are more production issues that I have less uh, expertise in, but um, the the actual cost of like the printing of the book and things like that, and the the publication and printing costs are actually much less a 
concern now than the cost of um, converting the files for ebook formats and the sort of general costs associated with publishing the book beforehand, like copy editing and typesetting and things like that. So, and to your point, what you were saying earlier, the labor costs around peer review. Right. Precisely. That is, I, I just I have a million ideas in my head of great controversial articles that someone could pick up and run with. <laughs> you know, peer review is driving the cost of our academic publications up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you see more and more people who, um, you know, in the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed that, you know, uh, kind of bemoan the system of peer review, essentially claiming that it's, you know, a bunch of sort of uh, insular specialists in a particular subfield who are all basically, you know, giving the green light to each other's work. So, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah. What do you think about that? What's your take on that? Given that that was that's part of your responsibilities is finding the the peers to review the work and yeah, um, synthesizing their feedback. I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, I have a feeling that. Um, and this is this is a, a an educated guess, I think, um, based on the, the reading the, that I've done less and less on my own kind of experience because I don't have experience with the sciences uh, specifically. But my guess is that it is bigger, a bigger problem in the sciences because um, you know certain topics and subfields in the scientists and the sciences are very specialized and, you know, you need to be able to do the sort of, um, the mathematical or experimental work in order to properly peer review, um, something in that subfield. So it may be that the people who are in a particular subfield in the sciences are much more insular in the sense that they all know everybody else who's doing research on their particular topic. Whereas I think in the humanities or the social sciences, um, there's a sense more um, that, you know, even if you're doing work in a very particular subfield, you know, if you're doing work on, um, uh, you know, I can't think of a good example. But, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing work on, um, okay, you know, here's, here's what the, you know, the um, ideology of, uh, you know, townspeople in particular, you know, in Munich and the surrounding areas in the lead up to, um, you know, the Nazi takeover of Germany. Um, I mean, that's a pretty specialized study, but there are a lot of sort of people who are doing work, similar work, who can read it and give it a proper peer review, I think. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's um, you know, almost any historian who works on, you know, pre-World War II Germany can probably, you know, do a decent peer review of that study. Mm. Whereas I don't know if that's the case as much in the sciences. I could be wrong. but mm. You know, it reminds me of this idea of a, a group of people greenlighting each other's work and, and essentially supporting each other and rising through the ranks. Mm -hmm. Even in graduate school, it's one thing that I at least noticed. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, three-fourths of the way through was that when I looked at all of the quote-unquote stars in the field, they all had, they were all part of a, a peer group. Yes. Say, um, they, that they all were at the same university or they were at the same age or they all came of age at a certain time and they had essentially, at the time what I decided was they'd essentially joined arms mm -hmm. and they rose together. 
Yeah. Right? Because it's much harder to rise as an individual. But when you're with a group, you know, one person's lift lifts the entire group. And it became this nice reinforcing lift. And I always thought that if you wanted to succeed in academia, that was really key. You really had to find an, a, a nice group of people who are smart and ambitious and rise with them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and I think you're right. There's sort of this, this you know, academics, like um, like a lot of things, I think. There's, it's very generational, right? You have, um, yeah, these sort of generational groups who, um, you know, they all know each other's work and are supportive of it. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that's, that's a good point. Um, I, I think it actually... Um I think it also translates to non-academic work. Sure. Which, (laughs) I'm embarrassed to say, it took me a while to figure out. (laughs) I was so proud when I figured it out in academia. And uh, and yet, when I left, I was like, oh, that's not how it works here. And it's absolutely, I think, uh, how it works Mm -hmm. uh, out here. And that is that you need to find a peer group of people that you like and trust and whose work you respect and... They, they tend to recommend each other and follow each other and recruit each other over yeah. time and, 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 and essentially drive successful careers for each other in that fashion. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think that's true. Yeah. It, it really makes me think about um, also what you were speaking to in your one-year-later piece about the importance of meeting with other PhDs who've also transitioned. Mm-hmm. We're at different stages, hearing about what they're doing, connecting with them, networking. Yeah, it's a similar form of peer, um, uh, yeah, finding like a set of people who, like you said, who's, um, who you know at a um, colleague, collegial, is that the right word that I'm looking for, on the level of a colleague? Um, uh, but yeah, you know who, even if they're in a different, maybe if they're in, even in a different industry than you, um, you at least know that, um, you know, from talking to them that they do good work and that they're an interesting person, then it's worth knowing them. Um, uh, and also being able to hopefully um, pass on whatever you've learned in your own work on to people who are, um, you know, who are at the stage you were three, four, five years ago, whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and they're able to recommend you with enthusiasm rather than yes. make a simple, cold introduction. Yes, exactly. And you just, you know, you never know. Um, I mean, this is, this is the whole, I mean, <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> the whole point of PhDs at work, right? It's to create a powerful network of professionals who understand yes. each other's background and training, mm-hmm. who are interested in learning about each other's work and supporting each other and making introductions and recommendations as needed. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that uh, I've actually profited quite a bit from, uh, from being a member of the group, so... Uh, well, I, I like to think a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I can only really speak to my own experience, of course. But yeah, I think that, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I when it maybe maybe uh, we're you know I was uh, we're approaching this the one year anniversary of the of, of when we started hosting happy hours, networking happy hours here in New York, and I was thinking about oh, it's like it's 
a birthday. It's an anniversary we should be celebrating. And Yeah, do you want to have a birthday party? <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to get some cake or something. I don't know. But uh, I was also thinking we should, well, it would be really nice to create a kind of... Uh, Wait, you've only been doing that for a year? Well, the in-person networking happy hours. Really? Yeah. Seems like it seems like longer first, but okay, yeah. I well, mean, it just speaks to the quality of the relationships you develop, right? <laughs> right? You're like, oh, yeah. I feel like I've known this person for so long. You're like, what? It's only been nine months. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I think that you know that's also part of. There's some real connection that happens when you meet people who immediately understand. Mm-hmm. at a core, your training and background, and hence what you're capable of. They may not understand what you do. Right. Right. <laughs> they may have no clue as to the details of your actual work. Uh, but there's something more abstract and philosophical. And Oh, I'm starting to sound a little cheesy, but... Uh, no, no, no. I think, I think that's true. I think there's something... Um, well, it's the experience that we all have, right, of... Um, you know, having been in academia and then being outside of it is, you know, that sense that you have that, oh, well, nobody kind of, you know, people who haven't been through that experience um, don't have a very good grasp, and why would they, of what it's like, you know? And so when you meet other people who have had that experience, you're kind of like, okay, I don't really need to, like, explain it to you because you know where I'm coming from. Yes, exactly. And you don't have to dispel the notion that a dissertation is a 20-page research paper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much for taking this extra time to, to walk us through academic publishing. I actually yeah. am not in that sector anymore. I, I'm, so, I'm so pleased to know that they're publishing academic books electronically. Mm-hmm. $100 oh, yeah. price tag is less interesting, but uh, it's good to know that technologically they're still more or less in the game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think you have to be. Any last words? Um, No, not really. Stay in school. Don't do drugs. I don't know. Good advice. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Adam. No problem. Special thanks to Adam for joining us and for uh, sharing with us a little bit more about his experience and uh, the ins and outs of academic publishing, scholarly publishing. And uh, thanks to you. Thanks for listening. I know that we're still working the bugs out here, so appreciate your listening and your insight and your feedback. Thanks for sharing that. The other news that I want to share with you is that our network is hiring. Members of our network are looking to hire exceptional talent, and they have offered to have introductory conversations with those who are in our network and those who are looking to make a transition. So it's a great opportunity. You do need to be a member of our network. You have to be an email subscriber to get early access to those announcements. And you can find that information, sign up, see other additional opportunities. All of that is on our website at phdsatwork.com. Again, phdsatwork.com. Take a look, check us out, join, and we'll see you here next time. Thanks, everyone.